Um, what, sorry, what is, or you all can just ask us the questions. It's easier. Uh, please don't be scared of us. <laughs> uh, so it's nice, how, nice that you can just ask questions. You can put your hand up. Yeah. Rather than um, we have a set questions to answer. Yes. Can we start with a little bit of your background and how you got to? How do we come here? Yeah. <laughs> Some of them do not know you all. Uh, yeah, the time. So that we don't get which hour can tell to stay here whole night to tell you. Um, um, I, my name is Ayaseri. I'm a bikuni. I was ordained in the, uh, 2009, October. So it's the first four bikunis that ordained in, um, at uh, Budhiyana Monastery, um, in famous, <laughs> famous uh, ordination. Um, I actually from Perth. Uh, actually, originally, I was born in Malaysia, and I came here to study as a uh, overseas student and I migrated here. I, uh, for all of you that are from Singapore, uh, you'll be interested to know that I actually worked in Singapore for three years, and I learned meditation in Singapore. And while you all travel all the way here to avoid your meditation retreat, um, I stayed there for three years because. Um, um, at that time, I wanted to learn more about Buddhism, and I don't know anything about uh, uh, Ajahn Brahm or the uh, Nolamara or Buddhist society at that time. So I uh, joined a group of Singaporeans to Taiwan for a pilgrimage, and that's how I, um, I met. I haven't actually didn't get a chance to meet up with the uh, master. I'm not sure you heard of... Um, but I was speaking Chinese because I know Chinese uh, uh, That's where I learned there's a Chan So breath is a meditation And they spend a lot of time to uh, um, meditate as well So it's just a different type of uh, um, uh, Buddhism And when I came back Well, because of that guy um, Spent three years there and in Singapore, you know, uh, I work really hard. Um, so I decided to migrate back to Perth. I got a grandmother here. And uh, when I was in um, Perth, I met uh, Aya Vayama. Uh, so I got two main teachers. So of course, I met Ajahn Brahm. And um, I met Aya Vayama. She's, um, she's Bikuni. She's the founder of uh, Dharma Saranan's monastery. And I met her at uh, Dharma Loka. And um, I used to be a member of uh, BSWA, well, in the library. <laughs> um, so, and I went to her talks, and of course, I went to all the uh, Friday night talk. Um, so, and I met her, and I went on a pilgrimage with Ajahn Brahm and I Vayama in 2002. And uh, I was really inspired. Um, of course, uh, we got a chance to meditate on all sorts of uh, places. And my favorite place is Vouchers Peak. And uh, I have a, a very good experience, so I told Ayavayama, I said, I want more of that. So um, um, that's how I uh, applied. Um, that's lots of other stories, uh, such as uh, I actually is a, a pharmacist. I graduated from Perth, uh, from Curtin University. And then I did my um, uh, naturopathy. <laughs> and then I wanted to do uh, Chinese medicine at uh, IMIC in Melbourne. Um, and Ayavayama is the one that um, to stop me because <laughs> at the time I say um, I, if I want to study ch Chinese medicine I need to leave Perth uh, to travel to stay in Melbourne uh, because to learn Chinese medicine you need to do learn uh, acupuncture and all those things you need to be there uh, I did do half a semester and then I went to uh, see her at Adana with one of the late uh, supporters Dana Ha Place and um, I asked her whether should I go. Uh, most people say yes, go. Just good things to do. Uh, she told she asked, told me that uh, I have enough uh, um, skills uh, to uh, help other people. It is time for me to focus on my practice. And I took her somehow uh, whatever she said do go straight into my heart. I took it seriously. I applied to be an Anagarika at Dhammasara the, uh, the same year. 
and I was uh, in Damasada next year. Um, I think, um, so at that time, uh, uh, Niroda, she's the first nun that, uh, uh, or first Anagaraka there, so I was the second one uh, at Damasada Nuns Monastery, and I was um, uh, with Ayavama all the way until she passed away. I looked after her, um, and we left uh, us as Ayavama's uh, uh, conditions uh, worsened, we left the monastery um, and then um, in a smaller place. Um, and I looked after her until she passed away last year. And Ajahn Brahm kindly adopted me. <laughs> as uh, after that, I don't have a place to go to. And Jana Grove is wonderful. Uh, to be, it's a wonderful place. Like I have the chance to uh, stay here to practice and uh, to spend time um, on my own and I take a rest and uh, refresh. And the bhikkhu is, uh, they are very supportive. Um, I told them that uh, I appreciate their friendship and uh, accepted me as uh, part of the team or the com into the community. I just collect dana there and they will come back to uh, Jana Grove to practice. So that's my story so far. I will be still here. Uh, I'm not living yet. Um, as um, Patacha, I'm a resident nun, so we established a place called Patacha Bikuni Hermitage, me and Ayavayama. Ayavayama is my teacher, so I uh, went into the monastery um, uh, since 2002, so I have been with her all the way until she passed away last year, so 20 years. Even though I do know Ajahn Brahm, I attended a lot of her seven, nine days retreat before this, um, but I spent most of the time with uh, uh, Ayavayama. And um, so after she passed away, we actually don't have a property. Uh, so now we are um, fundraising to uh, have a property, just a small place uh, for two or three nuns eventually. So that's why I'm here um, and see what happened. So, so very nice to meet all of you. So now is a Rinpoche Chanda have a chance to say. <laughs> I think most of you know me, possibly, because I tend to come here every year. Is that loud enough? Yeah. I, um, I've been coming here every year since 2012 for the rains. So, uh, yeah, originally I'm from England, but it's strange because even growing up, I didn't really feel very English, and I felt like a bit of a misfit in that country. I remember seeing a newspaper that's right, yeah. I always used to want to eat rice with my fingers. I didn't want to use a spoon or fork. And then I saw like an article on the front of a newspaper magazine or something of someone eating with their fingers rice. And I thought, why can't I do that? See, they do it, they do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, somehow I always had this question in my mind, I guess, growing up about why I'm here. And uh, luckily I had a best friend at school and we had a similar kind of uh, questioning mind. So we used to talk a lot about, you know, the meaning of life. And I guess it got to the, the age of about 15 when that question became really burning. And um, that's also the time that we start to feel a little bit of pressure sometimes to study for the GCSEs, the O-levels and uh, make decisions about the subjects we want to study and go to university. And I just felt I didn't know myself well enough to make that decision. You know, I, I still didn't know why I'm actually here, how I got here, what's the point of life, and, you know, why is there so much suffering? And um, my family weren't religious, so there weren't really any answers around me, and I didn't really resonate with Christianity either. So I guess... My spiritual search started at the same time as my teenage rebellion. <laughs> so I, that must have confused my family because at 15, 16, 17, I had pink hair, black hair, all kinds of hair, and <laughs> a bit like Ajahn Brown, all the kind of rock gear and velvet and lace and sequins. And my mom was thinking, goodness me, what's this? And then suddenly... Um, myself and my best friend decided to make a trip to India <laughs> at the age of about 19. And uh, when I got to that place, somehow it was very overwhelming at first because so much was happening and life was literally, you know, in the street in front of my face. 
life and death and you know animals and dirt and joy and sorrow nothing's hidden and that was quite overwhelming but after a short time I started to sense that the people there had mm, like a sense of being part of something you know in the west we can become very individualized and almost kind of cut off from society and so much focus on you know our own achievements and our own success and yet in India it felt like people had a sense that there's something beyond them something bigger than them and there was also a community spirit so things like impermanence and suffering were kind of obvious in the external uh, context but uh, after about a year I started feeling tired of you know just traveling and seeing different things and I wanted to start going in so I heard about um, Vipassana meditation taught by Essen Goenka that was my introduction to the Dhamma uh, and I did my first retreat I was 20 and it was in the Himalayan foothills in a small meditation center and total silence, 12 hours a day, sitting through pain, through everything. <laughs> Whatever comes up, you just sit and observe. And the practice is about getting in touch with the feelings in the body, noticing that they're impermanent, and learning how to stay, Ajahn Brahm would say, contented with that. Equanimous, cool, non-reactive, and notice just how you know these feelings in the body are kind of pulling our mind either in a wholesome direction or mostly, in my case at that time, an unwholesome direction. So I started realizing, you know, that even though before I thought that my happiness was very much dependent on external things, now I started to notice that actually my happiness was to do with the way I was reacting to my inner experience. And this was completely revelationary for me because I realized that if the suffering is being caused by my own reactions to my experience in life, then also I have some influence over my happiness as well. Yeah? So by staying present and by staying cool with whatever's arising and passing and noticing that it's changing all the time, I started to develop a sense of meaning, but also a sense of real steadiness and centeredness, um, and felt that I could relate to all kinds of different people with less judgment, with more compassion. And it was just a fascinating process to start to see the mind. So basically I stayed in India and Nepal and Thailand for many years cultivating that practice. And um, those meditation retreat centers are run entirely on a donation basis, which I think is fantastic. So people from every walk of life, all different Jains. I once served a retreat for Jain monks and nuns, and they had the, um, the brush that they'd uh, sweep the invisible beings under the seat before sitting down. And uh, they were actually wandering monks and nuns. There were Christian priests, nuns, there were people from Iran. I once did a retreat and there was an Iranian discourse every evening, so I'd sit with the Iranian people and play the discourse. And uh, village women, illiterate women, who, you know, somebody offered the train fare and they could come to the retreat. So I had this sense that Dhamma was something very universal and the practice, you know, was um, beyond religion, beyond kind of culture or age or any of that. And the beauty was that... Uh, you know, you only made a donation if it worked. <laughs> so these centers were developing. And, uh, and I was having such a wonderful time just serving and, and seeing all these people get benefit and realizing that our suffering and our mind is pretty much the same, you know. <laughs> Wherever we come from, whoever we are, we're all human beings with a certain range of emotions, a certain kind of uh, potential for awakening, no matter who we are. So this was one aspect of that particular teaching that really resonated. I'm talking too much. And then uh, <laughs> it was only the whole time, actually, that I was practicing in Asia, um, I had the aspiration to ordain. That's always the question, right? Am I good? Yeah. <laughs> so I had this aspiration growing. And the more I practiced, the more I thought, why stop practicing? Like, there's nothing really interesting me in the world. 
Um, but the problem was I couldn't find a monastery. Uh, most of the monasteries were for monks. But I did have a sense that in Myanmar, which was where my lineage came from, there was more options. So eventually I, I went there. And, uh, oh, the atmosphere was just, you know, everyone was saying, why don't you ordain? If you ordain, we can get the robes made. <laughs> so eventually, after about 10 years, I found a teacher. And I knew this is my chance, you know. So I, I ordained in Myanmar in 2004, first of all. And then in 2000, that was just for three months. And then in 2006, and that was the, the big one. <laughs> so I ordained there. And at that time, it felt like a full renunciation. I didn't feel that anything was lacking in that ordination, even though it was only eight precepts. So that means not eating after 12 noon. But um, I didn't have money, so, but I could handle money if people would give donations. I didn't need to very much. So it felt like a, quite a strong renunciation. And it was only later that I really realized that it's not the real, it's not the full thing. Um, so it was while I was in Myanmar practicing that I got very sick. Actually, the lifestyle was extremely austere. We did a lot of meditation. Um, and I had a wonderful, wonderful Sayadur who treated the nuns, sometimes even better than the monks, in the sense that he would make sure that those who were really sincere got enough support. So if you were a meditator and if you, know, you were sincere in practice, then that was the most important thing. So I never felt any discrimination. But because I got sick and because of the intensity of the climate and the food, uh, I've still got gastric condition, um, it was very hard to stay there. And around the same time that I was wondering what to do, I got hold of these uh, cassettes, actually CDs, by someone called Ajahn Brahmavamso. <laughs> and at that time I was quite prejudiced against western monks because I'd heard some of the teachings and it felt like yeah it's nice about community life and about being happy and living peacefully but I wasn't hearing stuff about jhanas and enlightenment which I was used to from Myanmar right because it's a traditional Buddhist culture so I was like yeah I don't really want to play this it's probably not very good but I'll give it a try you know <laughs> then I played a talk by Ajahn Brahm he says Normally I like to talk about jhanas and enlightenment, <laughs> but today I'm talking about meditation off the cushion. And then he talked about, actually similar to this afternoon, about living in harmony, looking after one another, and um, metta, the practice of metta. And this was something that was a little bit missing in that monastery, which was just about meditation. And I thought, wow, that was really, I had full PT through the body and mind. <laughs> And I started listening to a few more and staying up even later and getting up even earlier just so I could listen to one of these talks in English that was going straight to my heart. That was about 2010. And then I left Myanmar, mainly because of my health, but also at that time it was probably equally compelling to try and meet Ajahn Brown. So I met him in 2010 in Germany. And I'd already written him a few letters. Actually, I wrote some letters to Dhammasara, and you actually answered one of my letters. Yes. <laughs> I know of the... You wouldn't connect it. met you properly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's so, right. So uh, it seems I know each other for yeah. a long time, but we don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, it is. Uh, how the paths cross and, and meet. So, um... Yeah, so I met him and uh, he kind of knew that I'd left my teacher in Myanmar to train under him and I felt he sort of took me under his wing even then. But it was another couple of years and another retreat or two with him before I could get here for the rains. So in 2012 I did my first rains. Then you'd left Dhammasara, but I joined Dhammasara in 2013. I left in uh, 2010. Yeah. So I was one of the later batches. I was the third bikuni batch. So by then I realized that, you know, if someone like Ajahn Brahm says that bikuni ordination is important, then obviously it must be. And the thing is that I'd never really thought about it because it simply wasn't an option, you know, in Myanmar or anywhere else that I'd been. 
But of course, when I heard about bhikkhunis practicing in Perth, it was just, you know, obviously that's what you do if you had the chance, you know. This is the Buddha's training system that he laid down for us. So it was just obvious. And um, finally, in 2014, I took the full ordination. And uh, skipping on, uh, <laughs> 2016, uh, Jan asked me to go to England and try and start a monastery there, which now you know my background was very weird because I hadn't actually lived in England since I was about 18, really. Um, <laughs> so for me, it was almost like a foreign country and probably the least attractive place to be. Um, but it felt like such a, an opportunity to show my gratitude and pay respect to Ajahn and also to have him guide me because it's not so easy as a bhikkhuni to have much contact. And I had that sense even from before I ordained in Myanmar, that association with truly wise people is really makes the difference on the path. So, um, yeah, so that's what I'm still doing, and it's been seven years and not easy at all. Um, <laughs> but now we have a little place in Oxford. It's a three-bed townhouse. There's one other little room that can be used as a study. It's not really four-bedroom because that one's a small room. I've not actually been there yet. So my trustees, they bought it during my retreat. I've been here on six-month uh, retreat, probably not as uh, deep or as perfectly in solitude as Ajahn Brown, but it was a lot of solitude. So I'll be going back uh, in two weeks to see the new Vihara the first in England for bikunis. So I'm, I'm actually the English bikuni. There are a few more, but they're not in England. There are like three more, I think. Three or four. One's in Canada. Maybe two are in Canada. Uh, like there's one or two here that also have a British passport, but they live here. So basically in England, I'm the only bikuni. So Yes. If I can't find someone to train with me, I'll have to find an elephant or a monkey <laughs> to offer my food. <laughs> okay. It wasn't that exciting, so they compared to the story. I haven't left Perth. No, it was so exciting. I'm the, I'm the lucky one that who have been always in Perth, so I always have a viable and uh, a jump rum. and uh, so all oh, no, these years and. Um, haven't been to, I've been to India, but haven't really explored. Um, so lucky in, lucky in a way, um, but I do not want to go to places that I will not respect Bikuni to. Uh, so um, initially when I was in Singapore, uh, in the Mahayana tradition, they told me that uh, the Theravada do not respect women. <laughs> so initially I didn't really look for uh, Theravada tradition. So I came from a Mahayana tradition because of uh, people told me that uh, Theravada do not respect women. So I stay with the uh, Mahayana group until I returned here. And I met up with um, someone showed me the photos of uh, their pilgrimage to India. Um, and then I saw that I say, wow, that I would like to go. And that's how I have started to have connection with uh, BS, uh, Buddhist Society of Western Australia because I wanted to go to India. And uh, so I joined the group, and that's how I met uh, both uh, Ajahn Vayama and uh, Aya Vayama and uh, Ajahn Brahm. And I haven't left, so I'm still here. I'm still <laughs> enjoying birth. So we, we have lots of in common because we are starting a small place. Uh, uh, so we uh, have a chance to uh, share our experiences and uh, um, become Kalyanamishas, uh, become friends uh, to exchange our uh, stories. So that's very nice. I also... Another coincidence is that um, I studied as well for... Between those two ordinations I mentioned, I'd started a degree in England and it was in Indian medicine. So we're very similar like, in our interests, you know? <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> yes, I did do, uh, after uh, my um, um, pharmacy, I did uh, naturopathy. So I did practice as a naturopath. That's why I, and then wanted to be a witch doctor. So I, that's why I keep on going to study to be a Chinese doctor. But I uh, stopped me on my track. 
which is good. Um, I uh, have no regrets. I must say one of the greatest blessings is uh, for me to uh, meet the Dharma and to have the opportunity to ordain. So I have, uh, this is, so this is quite a long time ago since I walked through the door to be a, uh, the gate of Dharmasala to be Anagarika, the 2002, and this is uh, 2022. So there's uh, 20 years down the track. I still remember that my family members say, I will not make it because I don't like the cold. They give me two months, I will go home. <laughs> so uh, there's 20 years down the track, uh, even though I still feel the cold, but. <laughs> but you're warm inside. Uh, well, <laughs> I got. Oh, I wondered um, if anyone had any questions because, uh, you know, I don't know about ISOE. I always think I have nothing to say and then I realize there's quite a lot I could say, but I'd prefer to know if there's anything other people want to hear. Yes. Well, for me, for me, it's easy. Uh, easy. I went on a pilgrimage with Ayavayama. I actually met her uh, first time at uh, Budhiyana Monastery uh, when she was still here during the first rains. And I was so excited to say there's a nun here. So I came for the Katina ceremony as a lay person. And I saw this nun up there. I was too shy to speak to her because there's so many people queuing up. Um, but I'm, I think it's very important, uh, to me anyway, to have a teacher. Um, I did um, consider whether should I ordain in this tradition, because I'm from Mahayana background too, so I read and speak Chinese Mandarin really well. So I could have uh, a choice to go to, uh, um, to Taiwan, um, but I thought, I've got a teacher in front of me. And there's Ajahn Brahm as well, besides Ayavayama. So where else do I want to go? And I'm from Perth. I don't need to have the problems of applying visa. If I need to go to Taiwan to ordain, I need to, um, you need to have, um, I think, college uh, qualification. And then they only give you four years visa. I still remember that because uh, I attempted to go to, uh, to uh, Taiwan to ordain. So then there's a nun's monastery just starting in, um, um, in Gijiganap. So I say, well, why not? Um, so I did ask, um, because of what she said, I said, yes, I'll try. I've got lots of stories to tell, but I don't want to bore you. Um, so that's uh, my... Uh, um, um, good karma. Yeah, in a way, good karma. <laughs> I, must, I must agree. It's a good karma that I met uh, I, uh, I, am. I don't need to uh, think too much uh, about um, um, you know, looking for a teacher because she's in front of me. And I benefited... Um, so that's why I was all the way with her until she passed away. So I learned a lot. I'm very fortunate to have a, a Bikuni teacher. Yeah, so for me, um, it's strange because I knew I'd found my teacher in Myanmar before I met him, when I heard about him. Because I've been looking for a teacher for 10 years, a teacher to ordain with. Right, because in the Goenka um, meditation retreats, there were sometimes some lay teachers at the center, and I was lucky there were some good teachers, actually, who were lay people. And that inspired me, because being Asian, perhaps, they were already quite respectful of the Sangha. So when I told them I wanted to ordain, I remember one of my Nepali teachers, he had a real gleam in his eye, like he was really proud of me and really excited by that. So that was sweet. But... Um, so I was asking around for 10 years and preparing myself and doing lots of meditation. I mean, it was like 10 retreats, sitting and serving every year and not much else, you know. <laughs> had to fly over here and work a bit. And, and then finally, I was in India in 2003 during my degree for my three-month uh, summer. <laughs> I'd go there and meditate. And, uh, and someone told me that there's a Burmese monk who's in that tradition, the lineage of like Lady Sayadaw and Sayaji Ubakin, and that he's starting a monastery and he's going to have Westerners as well, and also that he had some attainments. He was known to have like very deep practice from a really young age. Um, and I was just, my face lit up. I was just 
pretty much jumping for joy when I heard this. And I, I decided, okay, I'm still doing my degree. I only did the degree because I couldn't find anywhere to ordain. And my mom told me, you can do this degree, like you can get a student loan, because I hadn't done one. I thought, I'll just do it as a backup. And, you know, it's typical. You start to do it, and then you find your teacher. So um, I went over for the three months in 2004, and uh, there he was. And he looked like the exemplary monk. And uh, interestingly, about a year or two later, he told me that he'd already met me in India when I was studying Pali there. And uh, he'd remembered. And then I remembered this uh, time that I'd walked out of the Pali uh, area and there'd been this monk with some stature. You know, he looked quite very mindful and peaceful and, yeah, quite impressive. And uh, I think I'd seen him there, yeah. So it was kind of an intuition. It was like just knowing that this is my teacher. Um, and he really took me in like a daughter. And then with Ajahn Brahm, it was like I said, you know, I heard the talk and it was the emotional response. I was just full of pity and I could tell somehow, or at least I felt, had confidence that whatever he was saying was coming from experience. Um, and it was the same, right? The same insights, the same kind of Dhamma that I'd already learned because the Dhamma is universal and the mind is universal. So, you know... Uh, it just I just gained this great confidence. But it's difficult, you know, to be um, to have a lot of contact with Ajahn Brahm. I'm very fortunate because due to my project and some karma there with him, I think, I get to be here every year on the mains so far, except for Corona. And, uh, you know, we're doing the project in England, so we have regular contact. And sometimes you just resonate. With Ajahn, I, I resonated with the teachings, first of all, so I didn't expect a sort of... Uh, any kind of personal contact, but somehow it's just very natural, you know. I think a lot of these things are past lives. We just meet the people we're meant to meet, and, you know, even if it's not perfect, you make the best of the opportunities you have. Yeah. But I do think it's amazing, good karma, if we can have a teacher or someone. I mean, it might be a spiritual friend. It doesn't have to be an ordained monastic or anyone that, you know, is fully enlightened, because we don't really know. Um, but it's really helpful to have somebody to talk to about your practice over the years, because they get to know you, and so the advice becomes very personal, you know. And for me, with Ajahn, I mean, he's seen me in every possible state of mind. Not every, because I'm not enlightened. So. <laughs> but, you know, he's seen me in my lowest, really lowest. And um, when someone still trusts you and still stays steady for you through all of that then you think wow and they don't judge you then I think you found your teacher you know hmm <laughs> I've got so many questions <laughs> will your monasteries have uh, retreats like this for their small um, for me uh, I haven't have anything it's not here yet it's still manifesting <laughs> <laughs> but it will not be a retreat like this. Uh, for me, I will be in Perth. Um, so I don't need you. You can come to Jana Grove. There's two monks and nuns monastery. And um, I have been uh, looking after Aya for the last 12 years. So I am looking forward to some time of a bit of a simple and <laughs> quiet life. So they have a bit of time to practice on my own. But people, of course, can come and stay. But you don't need to do so much work uh, uh, for, for nuns or for the monastic, uh, for the lay people. Uh, just so it's just only four or five people. And I'm happy to teach. Um, unfortunately, when you get senior, uh, you don't have, uh, you will be asked to teach wherever you go anyway. Uh, so I will not be, uh, so the, the um, a hermitage, actually, is called Patacha Bikuni Hermitage. So it is established already. We have a, it's a registered association. We actually have a commission members as well. So it's not new. And uh, we have a, Dana, a group of Dharma people. When I was still looking after Aya, I used to do a meditation day. And um, so these uh, meditation day or special days like uh, we have uh, end of the rain ceremony, but it's only two bikunis. 
and the people, I was told that it is a thousand over people for the <laughs> Katina here. Um, but for uh, Epatachara, we uh, only have 70 or 50. <laughs> There's not a lot compared to uh, here. Uh, it, will, it can be more, but because uh, at that time I'm not in a property of our own. We are very lucky that a lay person, actually a lay woman, invited us to be there because she was sick. Um, so then we are restricted uh, to the number of people who can be there. So even meditation day, uh, 20, 20 people, 25 people, uh, that's, uh, that we can invite. Um, so uh, that's uh, for me. <laughs> Well, for me, it's even smaller because um, it's so expensive and so difficult. Like I say, it's been seven years for me without a place to actually stay. Um, the first four was living with lay people, a week here, two days here, three days here, literally, with my computer organizing tours for Ajahn Brahm, and it was very tiring. Sometimes I could go to other people's monasteries, but then I'd have their schedule on top of mine so <laughs> or should I say my schedule you know my tour organization and project kind of trying to get things together on top of their monastery schedule um, so we've only just got a place and it's pretty small um, what we have been doing is hiring rich kind of conference centers in England but it's difficult because due to corona the two in the whole country that were the right size for Ajahn Brahm have now gone under completely so that's really tough to find a suitable place they cost a lot to hire so like Ayaseri really um, I give a lot of online teachings and hopefully if my volunteers get a bit more enthusiastic they might organize some retreats for me to teach in other places but at the moment I'm organizing everything so um, yeah that becomes a little bit too much I think it's important to just point out that um, whilst most people here might uh, feel that it's just as beneficial you, you want bhikkhunis just as you as much as you want bhikkhus um, it's not reflected in the support we get you know bhikkhu monasteries are supported by their lineage countries so this place would get actually this place gets support from many places but also they have things like the royal katina from thailand right there's nothing like this for bhikkhunis we don't have some kind of lineage there's a huge gap between the buddha and now actually about a thousand years of gap with no theravada bhikkhunis so when you hear ajahn talking about stories about you know, forest monks, it's forest monks and it's wise old monks and it's uh, life in monks' monasteries and tudong for monks, but for nuns this is not really a possibility. So it's very, very new, very, very new for women. You know, we, we're fortunate that we can spend some time here, but once we leave here, we live in a small house and, uh, <laughs> You know, at least in England, uh, I have to run a website, a Facebook page, um, a YouTube channel, a newsletter. Uh, it's it's a lot of work to um, to try to yeah have have some visibility and um, and raise some support. So, luckily, I have Ajahn Brahm to help. So we have managed to get some funds and. Um, the idea would be to get maybe a five-bed, bigger house in the countryside somewhere that there's a bit of land. A bit of land in England is one or two acres, so that's a bit of land. Um, and maybe have some outdoor accommodate, like some caravans or maybe cooties if, if we can get the permission. But whilst I'm still only one bikini, it's, uh, it's tricky. That's why I say I need an elephant or a monkey. <laughs> Unless you want to come. <laughs> there was the story, you know, about the elephant and the monkey looking after the Buddha offering food. <laughs> so, yeah, Actually, it'll take time. If you can, support the bhikkhunis and nuns if you want them to be uh, in assistance. Um, I heard a lot of story about uh, Ayavayama. She, um, in, in uh, Sri Lanka, she said one of the most difficult things is to find a place to stay. When she was um, 1985, she was in Sri Lanka. She said she got to do the same thing. She go from uh, house to house to do house sitting. 
So they have two nuns. So she have another Sri Lankan nun. That's uh, Sister Damadini. I think she already passed. Both of them passed away now. Um, so she, they will go from one place to another. They don't have a place to stay. Uh, people uh, invite them to uh, dana, and that's why she uh, very determined uh, when being invited by BSWA, she come. She wanted to establish a place for the nuns to stay. I must say, as far as I understand, outside Western Australia, um, the support is um, for nuns is not so great. <laughs> um, yeah, even here. Yeah, well. I'm one of the, yes, I can understand, uh, because I'm not affiliated with uh, Buddhist society now. So uh, uh, as long as I'm here, then, no, it's just okay. I have a, we have a support group. For me, I have a support group because I have been here for a long time. I was from Perth. So I work in Perth. Uh, um, some of the supporters, like uh, I saw them, they're still a baby. Coming to the pharmacy, their mother get their antibiotics while working as a pharmacist. That's how I know them. Uh, some of the doctors that I uh, work with them, and they're now retired. So I know the community here, so slightly different from my agenda. But I understand. I do the one-man show, too. I do organize my own retreat. Uh, I spoke to Arjun, actually. Uh, he suggests that I uh, uh, offer services, that means talks and uh, teaching in Fremantle area, which BSWA do not reach that area. So I need to do organization of uh, uh, finding a locations and uh, looking for a place uh, to do the teaching. And that's uh, how we can get, uh, hopefully, some more donations for our property that uh, we are looking for. Um, so it's still more, uh, more difficult but in Western Australia, at least, uh, we are more well-known. There's Bikuni, yeah? Uh, but uh, I think outside, hard. Any other questions? Yes. Just uh, firstly, Venerable uh, Chanda, I love the word the English uh, Bikuni. It sounds like the English patient told me better. Um, <laughs> the English patient? The English patient, the movie. Oh, OK. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering, too, do you, both of you, like you talked a little bit about how you're not as well supported, do you get outright uh, prejudice from traditional people or even from the, the communities? And how do you handle that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big question. There's prejudice everywhere, I would say. Um, in Thailand, as a Burmese nun, I was always asked, why you wear this colour? You shouldn't wear this colour. It was a different colour than the white colour. So in Burma, it's still eight precepts, but it's more like you are like a non. I mean, that is the non's ordination platform. So you're not considered a lay person, but they didn't like that in Thailand. And it was consistent wherever I went. Um, <laughs> so that was a bit disappointing. And of course, it's not every, you know, it wouldn't be everywhere. There are, I mean, there's one monk... Ajahn Gunha, who does have a couple of one bikuni staying with him. Ayanirodo actually is there. I think there's only one bikuni. There might be another bikuni, and there's a seminary as well. Um, in Burma, it's illegal, so it's not even a question. So you wouldn't even exist there. Uh, you'd be imprisoned or you'd be in danger if you were there. One of my friends stayed there for a while and uh, sort of a little bit undercover. I mean, she didn't say that she's a bikuni. And then at one point, people started to find out, and she was quite frightened. She was okay in the end. In Myanmar, Burma. Mm -hmm. And then in England, it's very hard, because here, the main sangha, Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahmali, are very, very strong supporters of bhikkhunis, and they you know, ask people to support the bhikkhuni sangha. So they have a forest monastery, which is very beautiful, and it's well-supported, so people can have a very secluded and meditative life. They don't have to do much teaching. Um, it'd be nice if they did a bit more teaching. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I'd love to hear the bhikkhunis do more teaching myself um, because there's some really, really wonderful nuns there. And uh, it's wonderful that ISA is going to be here to teach people because you've got so much wisdom and so much 
maturity and practice. You know, it's really inspiring for me. It doesn't mean only this. <laughs> but you've had very good training, and I'm so impressed by the way you cared for your teacher. It's just moving, you know. It's incredibly moving. I think, I don't know anyone else who's done something like that. It's, it's well, I'm very lucky. I have a, on that IY, and she's a very great teacher. Mm. Um, so we go both ways as everything because uh, I'm lucky that I'm grateful to have heard the teaching from her even though she was quite sick she's still you know, offering me the teaching I will go uh, like last year she entered into palliative care last year in June in May I asked her what do you think that I share the topic at, uh, she encouraged me to do the uh, VSAP meditation day um, to, uh, most of us online because we have a all shut down, and uh, I asked her what sort of uh, what's the topic. She she can't speak really well. She will spell it out for me. What is the topic that I should uh, talk about? So uh, just uh, uh, and teaching about her uh, in during sickness and death. So it is a uh, great teaching for me. Um, but um, I must say, yeah, the support is. Um, I'm lucky in a way I'm here, but even though I say lucky, um, for IFM, I should used to teach every once a, a month and she do the weekend retreats and uh, that's how she built up the support for Dhammasara Nuns Monastery. Um, and um, so she, someone got to do a lot of work beforehand. Yeah. And I was one of the... Um, early bikuni um, nuns there so I know how much work that we do you know, uh, physical work um, you heard all the monks talking about it, the nuns now probably don't need to do so much um, I used to need to carry uh, we do work, as not just sweeping but um, building embankment with the rocks and uh, carry the rocks uh, and we don't drive uh, I could, we got to carry using a wheelbarrow to uh, wheel it from one side to another because the uh, rocks embankment because of uh, there's uh, uh, water erosion. So uh, we know all about that. I learned about the water tank. I used to tell someone that I say, um, I'm not going to do the water tank anymore. I used to jump into the water tank to, to clean the big water tank that up there and also small water tank that are with each coochies. So I used to jump in there at the time I was young, so do really scrub the, um, the tank and dry, uh, drain the water. So we do all those things, climb up the, uh, on top of the uh, roof um, to clear all the gutters ourselves. Uh, I'm scared of heights. <laughs> but um, I have a, a great teacher because um, there's not many of us then. So uh, manpower is difficult. And I have Ima, she's so agile. She jump, she get up to the roof. So I say, okay, I will come along. Because I don't want her to do all the work by herself. So I uh, get up there as well. So that's, um, we, we used to do a lot of work too. Um, I think, so, so then teaching. So when you go back to, you say about discrimination. Um, it is hard um, when you, I came from a family that um, I, I'm not from a Buddhist family. But my parents think that I have the same potential as a male. So they didn't think that even though I'm a female, I will not be able to achieve the same way. So I, they uh, let me study so I can, uh, um, you know, I went to university, they pay for all my fees and everything. So because they have the belief, they're confident that even though I'm a, a daughter, a female, I have the same potential. So when I come to Buddhism, <laughs> Being told that uh, I can't ordain uh, as uh, the, uh, the same level initially, I did have uh, uh, some doubts and thinking about should I ordain or not in this tradition? Uh, because um, um, it's hard to, you know, as I say, I finished uh, studying pharmacy, I uh, uh, work as a pharmacist, and I can. Um, do whatever I want to do, and then I keep on doing a study naturopathy. So there's nothing stop me in the so-called the no normal yes. world? Career. career or normal world. But then when you come to the 
Buddhist world, uh, I was uh, told that now there's no full ordination. Um, I must say, uh, I also need to give credit to Ajahn Sujato. I went to the uh, Bikuni conference in Santi Monastery. Ajahn Sujato at the time was uh, the, um, the abbot. I remember he told me that rebel if they don't do Bikuni ordination. <laughs> well, probably uh, asked me to do, uh, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but uh, I was uh, attending the Bikuni ordination, uh, conference. I was really interested to uh, to be able to ordain at the time once I find out that we can ordain. I remember that there's a conference in Germany, Hamburg. Uh, Dalai Lama was telling the, the nuns who want to have a bhikkhuni ordination, say that, well, you need to uh, learn the Patimokha. Um, actually, I went back, uh, I heard that, and we, I'm still a seminary. I started to learn, memorize the Patimokha in Pali. I'm not a bhikkhuni then, because I would like to be able to... Uh, push it forward, to have the opportunity to ordain and to be able to show that, well, the monks can chant Patimokha, so are we. Uh, we female, we are the same. <laughs> we are the same brain, same mind, same, you know, um, to have the same opportunity. Um, but, um, yes, but I'm lucky that we can, we are very fortunate and yeah. very happy and grateful that we can ordain as Bikuni. So, and all of you are here willing to listen to us. So, Sada, Sada to you. <laughs> it's horrible. Day to Can be I say in. one more thing about yeah. the situation in England? Could I, could I say something? And also just to contrast it with my experience in Myanmar, because it's so important to be able to have the full ordination, I mean to receive it, because this is the Buddha's gift to us. And yet at the same time in Myanmar, I had the same practice opportunities as anyone else. I found the, the teacher, you know, I had a kuti, I was supported to live a holy life, and so I had a very, very conducive um, practice and opportunities. It was deeply inspiring. I felt like I was living in the time of the Buddha or something like this. So the irony is that now I have the full ordination, and over here in Perth that felt incredibly special, and there is a forest monastery for nuns. But in England, um, the Sangha do not support bhikkhuni ordination. So they actively, I don't know if they really discourage people from supporting us, but they certainly don't say anything positive and they're not forwarding the conversation at all. So, you know, there was a little um, clip of a question someone asked to um, a couple of the monastics there about gender equality, and there was just defensive answer. And then that little clip, the whole video, was removed from the website. <laughs> and so, I mean, there is an ordination platform in England to ordain on literally 10, like it's actually like a novice ordination, but they observe 150 precepts. So they have a training that's very similar. Right, okay. It's similar to the Bikuni ordination, but it's actually not recognized. You're not recognized and you're not officially part of the Sangha. So you're still in a a subservient role and you still depend on the monks for support so for me being a bhikkhuni in England is extremely difficult and I don't get much arms food at all I mean once every two weeks something like that and if we had a place with enough for three people in the living room, it would be enough. <laughs> no, I mean, we need a, bigger, a slightly bigger place. But, you know, I don't think I've ever had more than, like, four at the same time, and it's rare. And I think this is because there is a sangha, and that sangha has decided not to do the full ordination for women, and people accept it because it's better than not having a sangha, right? And there's a lot of good teachers, good monastics, good senior nuns as well who've been in robes much longer than me. So it's very, very hard in that context to actually bring anyone to us because people have so much respect for the monks. You know, here, if Ajahn Brahm says support bhikkhunis, people will be influenced by that. If he was saying don't, people would be influenced by that. So that's the difference um, in England. I think so. Yeah, for me, there's also a psychological effect of the discrimination long term because we have to work much harder and we have to be all rounders and do things we maybe don't feel ready for, like teaching. You know, I'd quite like to be further on the path before I start to teach. Um, and so, because of that, we feel tired, we feel overstretched, and then we don't. 
appear so peaceful and calm as monks who don't have very much to do, right? So then that reinforces the gender stereotype that women, you know, they have more difficulties, maybe they're weaker, they get upset, <laughs> or whatever. So after a while, when it's so much harder and you're not getting the support that would normally uh, be engendered by that much work, you start to think, is it me? Is there something wrong with me, you know? Um, and this is the real difficulty for me long-term, and it gives me a lot of doubts about, well, I mean, there's nothing else... I'm here for in life. I can't not be in robes. So then sometimes I feel I physically can't keep going, you know? And then, wow, this is tough. So that's really hard, yeah. Just before we finish, one of the reasons just for the female as well and for all of you to understand is um, um, you, when you go to interview with Ajahn Brahm, he can't really talk too much about his meditation. But being a bhikkhuni, we are part of the Sangha. I, I did that uh, over the reins. We can take out our flesh out our bikuni uh, privilege card. I can ask him direct question. Like, he probably can't tell you whether he ever, whatever attainment he has. But he has to say, he has to be honest and uh, talk to me about it. So I can, <laughs> because I asked, uh, you can't, he can't. Um, I think I was asking him a question. He got to ask, uh, I have a chaperone. He got to ask the chaperone to walk out of the door. Some of you might be there. Walk out of the door and walk back quickly because he can't say yet something in front of a lay person, but he can say that to me. That's one of the incentives for, uh, at the time, uh, I was really keen to push for the uh, bhikkhuni ordination too. So for us to advance on the path, you need to be able to hear someone. He, uh, Ajahn Brahm has explained a lot, but you want to hear more details. <laughs> <laughs> so that is one of the advantages of being a Sangha. Sangha means ordained as a monk or a nun. Um, then um, it gives us opportunity to, to choose. We have equal opportunity to be able to attain whatever uh, um, state or whatever uh, practice that the Buddha had described. Um, be, before we have someone to be able to dis discuss directly, it's hard. You know, he just, I've been to some discussion, you know, they're talking, some, some monks, and not Ajahn Brahm, talking about some attainment of other monks. They sort of, you can't really, <laughs> uh, some information be withheld. Like, uh, I can't really uh, join the share in. But with that, we feel that like, uh, we have the confidence that like, uh, we will have the same potential, uh, same opportunity now to be able to practice uh, to the same, if possible, to the same um, as the monks. Because we have teachers who can share with us now. So uh, hopefully, if you're considering, uh, any one of you are considering uh, ordination, that is one of the incentives that why we would like to have bhikkhuni ordination. Just like when Pachanda says, she has the support, but she's not part of the Sangha. You still uh, cannot uh, know all the information, but you still can't get all the support. She's lucky to have a teacher that who have the support, that offer her the support. As I say, Ayavama and the other nun in Sri Lanka, they don't. Um, they got to walk a fair way to Adana and just stay in someone's house, uh, from house to house, to house sitting, something like house sitting. So they offer to the nuns to stay for a few months while they are away, and they come back. So these two nuns got to move to another location to look for another place uh, among villages. Uh, in the Buddhist country, but the monk have uh, in the Buddhist country have have a big monastery, but the nuns no, um, they got to move from one uh, one place to another. So uh, it's just fortunate here, yeah, but this is very exceptional. keep going. Thank you. You have the same potential. True. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I wish her well as well. Uh, <laughs> Once every two weeks. <laughs> 
Well, what it means is that I have to, um, again, be very visible and try to talk about what the project's about and why it's good to come and stay in a monastery. And so I have to have guests um, coming to stay. But usually I only have one, and I have to try and seal the gaps. So, you know, people apply, and then I have to try and make sure there's someone to cover it all the time, and they cook. They cook. But the, on the positive side, like ISOE says, we have... Um, Funds we have actually donations, so uh, we one of the things we can do if we really need to is um, you know get in groceries and things like this, and then the lay guest cooks. But um, during the corona period, it was quite lovely because I did a lot of teaching online, like three a week or something like this for the online community. And we gathered people. Many of you are here, actually. And I've met a few people here who say, we've been coming to your talks, which is very touching because I haven't met most people. I just know them on Zoom. Anyway, as a result of that, throughout the pandemic, people would offer the weekly shop so from those Zoom attendants, uh, I got, I think, a vegetable box and a weekly shop every week. But I had to cook because it was corona and there were no guests. I couldn't really have guests. So there is an allowance in the Vinaya that Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Brahmani told me about, that you can cook in times of danger and difficulty, famine and difficulty, something like this. So I had no choice. It was strange after... 17 years in robes now, not cooking. Uh, I can still cook, though. <laughs> so I saw it like, okay, I just try to, you know, make it a practice of compassion. So, yeah, it's a very different system, and it's a lot more work because we have to book people in, and, you know, even people coming for dana, they have to kind of uh, book in first because I'm alone. So it's very different. Yeah, it's very, very different. You know, there's a lot of organising to actually uh, receive the dana. But I'm fat enough. <laughs> I'm following in the footsteps of my teacher. <laughs> Almost. I think it's the same thing. No, 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 really, I've gained five. I, w I was overweight that time. <laughs> I just want to say that it's the same thing with Dharmasara in the beginning. Um, there's a roster in Dharmaloka for uh, Dharmasara Nuns Monastery. And uh, someone got to put in to bring dana. Now you could see lots of people going. That's after how many years? Uh, in the beginning, I was one of the people who bring dana. I could see that, you know, you got, they must have one person to bring dana to Aya because otherwise she's so far away from everyone else. I think she got the laser Porsche quite close, but still 15 minutes away. So uh, there's a roster for people to bring down our Dhammasara initially, um, one person, and then other people join in. So initial starting work is hard. Yeah. And people don't have the tradition of supporting the nuns. So when they heard um, there is a, 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 a place, I suppose, in uh, Buddhayana, the uh, traditionally those uh, Thai people, they, they knew what the monk is, so they come straight away. For the nuns, they are not quite sure initially. So it's all hard work by all the people before us. And um, now our Chanja still need to do the work in, the, in England. I just want to thank you for that, yeah, because you were one of the first bhikkhunis here. And I think what you and Ajahn Vayama and the other two yes. have done... You know, in having the courage, because we often praise Bhantasajato and Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Brahmali, rightly, rightly, because we need those monks to support and, you know, educate the public that it is legal, according to the Vinaya, and it's possible, and they want to support it. But actually, it's the women who took the ordination who deserve the praise. Because they had a lot of, you know, uh, there were people objecting. You know, there were senior Sangha members from different countries. Uh, objecting to that and giving a lot of pressure for them not to do that, right? And also family members. And you have to be so strong. So there's a big sacrifice in kind of forging paths. And I think, you know, as bhikkhunis, yeah, we, we kind of count as a marginalized group. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes you could call us an endangered species, but we're coming back from the brink. <laughs> so <laughs> please just help us to, you know, take the next steps. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to have a chat with all of you. Yeah, uh, maybe both of us.
Um, you, I have some. Inf- oh, I don't have some information here. You can Google for me. Patachara, P-A-T-A, C-A-R-A, Patachara Bikuni Hermitage. Or you can Google my name, Ayaseri. It should be on um, because we have a website. Or Ayavayama, whoever that you can remember the name. Um, otherwise, it's Patachara Bikuni Hermitage. I can put. I'll give you the information uh, sheet. It would be great to print out and tomorrow just have that out there for people. I have it. Um, I can uh, just bring it down. It's already print out. Then you just go onto the website. I have a few leaflets out there, actually. There's a few leaflets, only little ones. But, yeah, we are called Anukampa, A-N-U-K-A-M-P. P-A, Anukampa, it means compassion, but it means the compassion that resonates, like empathetic compassion that's active, that manifests in action. I love that word. So it's anukampaproject.org is the website. So it's a project um, <laughs> because it's you know still taking shape. And uh, we have a YouTube channel, Anukampa Bikuni Project, there's heaps of talks from Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahmali, and me, and other bhikkhunis too. During this entire retreat, I had a bhikkhuni speaker every week on my channel. So you can actually come to our Zoom talks. That's a great way to be involved because then you get to know the community, at least online. And uh, I think what we need more than anything is uh, volunteers and people locally. I mean, if you want to visit and stay, this is wonderful. It's the, it's the human power that we need, even more than the funds. I mean, funds is important to get a bigger place, but it's people, because being just alone for a long time <laughs> can get a little bit, hmm, am I doing this for myself? It doesn't, I'm not actually, so why is there only me? Like, if nobody's really interested, then I could, I don't know what, I could do something else. So, <laughs> so it'd be really nice to have more people involved, uh, and you're welcome to visit from wherever you are. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. And for the Singaporeans, I mean, you come here every year, you can visit Aya. Yes, you can. It's, um, <laughs> place. You can definitely it's very near. See, uh, see me. <laughs> I'm uh, not plan to be here next range uh, because I'm in Perth. I definitely can come out here to listen to the talk anyway. Uh, to Ajahn Brahm's talk during the rain, so I don't need to stay here. So other, other nuns have the opportunity to come here to stay. So I hope to leave here by April next year or something. Mm. But you can come to approach me if you want me to write down the Hermitage uh, address. Um, you can Google them. It's all the pictures, and uh, you can see all the pictures with me, and I, uh, I have been posting because the Hermitage established in 2011. Uh, all the way until now, it's still in the system. We don't have a place. At the time, we have a temporary place. And those who have relatives or connections in Oxford, the UK, uh, do... Uh, London as well. Anywhere in England, yeah. Anywhere. Uh, yeah, because we need to tap into the Buddhist communities because you understand what this is about. And this is the tricky part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. You have the opportunity to strengthen Buddhism in the world because the Buddha said that we need the fourfold assembly and only then has Buddhism truly arrived. So, very good. Thank you for all your support. Thank you.